Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 106th edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. The Wolf. And I will be joined, as usual, by my co-host and partner in crime, Gary Action Jackson from the East Coast of the U.S. And we really appreciate you guys listening to our show. Uh, we really appreciate you listening to the Robert Plant pictures at 11 episode that we put out last week we got a lot of positive feedback on that that i really appreciate it was him starting his career post led zeppelin uh, and it was a fun record for us to go back uh, and revisit and i wanted to give a shout out to move it on 2660850 who is a follower of our show uh, and is a fan of the shout it out loudcast guys who are buddies of ours and on twitter he hit us up with hey uh, agree that Fat Lip is the best of the bunch. I had never listened to the album before and enjoyed listening to each track via YouTube before you would talk about them. Robert can be frustrating as a fan, but admire his move forward philosophy. Great pick and an interesting episode. So thanks, moving on. We really appreciate that. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate everyone who checks us out and you can find us really anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Good Pods is very good to us. We are often on the top 10 of their music lists, and we appreciate everybody interacting with us on there. And so if you want to be like moving on, you can interact with us on Twitter at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. And maybe if you're thinking about it, guys, if you like the show, you can give us a positive review at one of those spots. It just helps us find more rock and roll fans like you. Now, for this week, we are going back in the vaults for something that we really love that affected us in a big way, and that's Aerosmith's Permanent Vacation, which came out 35 years ago in 1987. Now, this may not be the best or our favorite Aerosmith album, but it hit us right at that right time. We were like 14, 15 years old. Aerosmith had been gone for a little while. They were huge in the 70s, early to mid-80s. They had their issues, lineup changes, drug problems, all that kind of stuff. They got back together, thanks to Geffen Records. They were making a comeback. And the big thing that helped launch them was Run DMC covering Walk This Way and putting them in the video. It was huge for Run DMC, no doubt, but it was even bigger for Aerosmith. So the next year, 87, they come back with their own album, Permanent Vacation. And it's got big hits on it. But it's not just Joe Perry, Steven Tyler, Toxic Twin, and Tunes. They bring out side writers, really for the first time. And that was all due to John Kalander, A&R man extraordinaire, who is now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. For Geffen, suggesting you've got to work with some other people, and I'll bring you Desmond Child, and I'll bring you Jim Valens, and I'll bring you Holly Knight, and we'll get you some hits that you can get on the radio. So there's a mix. There's some great rockers in here. They got the big ballad Angel, which went way up to the top of the charts, but you got hard rock and Dude Looks Like a Lady. You've got Magic Touch, which I absolutely love. And then you've got some kind of funky songs like Hangman Jury and things like that. So it's an eclectic mix. May not be their best, but after maybe selling four or five million total records on their last three or four records, this one sells five million in the U.S. alone. It put them back on top in a big way, thanks in big part to Geffen getting them all over MTV, investing in some videos, and John Kalodner forcing them to work with some outside writers, which really got them some great, great hits. We're going to go track by track and listen to little snippets of them along the way. Now, as usual, we like to remind folks that we are part of the Pantheon podcast, and you can check us out at Pantheon Pods on Twitter. Go to PantheonPodcast.com, and you can see dozens of great music-related shows, amazing hosts, fantastic guests. 
And we always like to give shout outs to the folks who we've had on our show or we've been on theirs, like the great Paul Stevenson of Vintage Rock Pod and This Day Rocks, like Martin Popoff, History in Five Songs, like Christy Alexander Hallberg, Rock is Lit, like Jay Scott from The Hook Rocks, and like the Kiss Kings, Tom and Zeus of the Shout It Out Loudcast. We appreciate the shout out you gave us on your 200th episode of Eddie Trump Boys. Uh, and if you listen closely to this one, you might hear a little something from them in here. Also, of course, we have to thank our amazing sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Look, it's the holidays, guys. I know you got to get something special for that rock and roller in your life. Go to RareVinyl.com or EIL.com. You can get first edition records. You can get rare and mint condition records. You can get tour programs, sometimes with ticket stubs in them. That rare 7-inch single, that rare 12-inch single, whatever you're looking for. They have for a little quarter of a million items in stock. They ship all over the world. And if you use code PODCAST, you can get 10% off every single thing you buy. Not just for the holidays, but everything going forward. So please go check out rarevinyl.com or EIL.com. Use the code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. They have an amazing team, a wonderful staff who not only figures out what they've got, but they keep it in good shape and they ship it to you in just as good quality please check out rarevinyl.com. Now back to Aerosmith. Yeah, I mean, I guess we knew Sweet Emotion and Walk This Way and Dream On from the 70s because we're kids of classic rock American radio. But Run DMC was a big deal to us in like 85, 86, 87. They're all over MTV. They're introducing the suburbs to hip hop, to rap. And so we wanted to see Run DMC. We're like, oh, okay, well, they just kind of covered this old Aerosmith tune. Oh, yeah, I know that one. And the video was big with Steven busting through the wall of the studio because they were right next door and then getting on stage with him. It was a pop culture classic, and it really helped relaunch their career as headliners in arenas, stadiums all around the world. And it was the album, Permanent Vacation, that really took them to that next level. So Jackson and I are going to go ahead and jump in here, guys. 1987's Permanent Vacation by Aerosmith. We'll go track by track right here on The Wolf. I got to tell you, Jackson, you know, if people ask you about, you know, favorite bands, I always say it's, it's always the same. It's the Stones, Led Zeppelin, Rush, plus I like Oasis. That fifth spot can be anyone based on what I'm listening to at the time. Sometimes it's Pink Floyd. Sometimes it's uh, Iron Maiden. Back in the day, it might have been Van Halen. And I never put Aerosmith up there. But when anybody ever asked me, who's the greatest American rock band? Because I'm such an Anglophile. It's easy. It's, well, it's Aerosmith. There may be other bands I like more, but I love Aerosmith. And you can't deny not only their impact, but just the number of records they've sold and the different eras of Aerosmith, man. It's it's the greatest comeback story in the history of rock and roll. Right. And there's somebody, they're a band that really knows what they're doing, what, what the what the audience is looking for, and then, then they give them that. And you're right. I mean, they were down for the count. They were out of business. Everybody was just gone on mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol. They get back together. They have a, basically, they have two careers. I mean, the, uh, there's always the school of thought that the hardcore Aerosmith fans don't like the you know 80s and 90s stuff because that was the hits and they had the MTV right. uh, success. But I mean, like you said, you can't you can't argue with success. They saw they came out of the drug fueled times yeah. and, and had a five million selling record. And let's see, while we're here, let's just see after that. 
No, no, look, man, listen. I mean, you, you can trace it pretty clearly. Like when I talk about it on our Christmas show on Christmas time in Hollis, Aerosmith was done. They broke up. Joe Perry went and did the Joe Perry project. Brad Whitford did Whitford St. Holmes. And they got in uh, Rick Dufay and Jimmy Crespo to play guitar in their place. And they made the record Rock in a Hard Place, which did not do well. And they're not touring. And it's the early 80s. So New Wave is the thing, you know, and all their contemporaries are kind of gone, right? I mean, Led Zeppelin's gone because John Bonham died. The Eagles have broken up. The big 70s acts you know, are all gone. Black Sabbath has a new lead singer. They're all gone, right? So Aerosmith's trying to kind of keep going. They're playing clubs again. You know, Jill Perry's living in a halfway house. And they all kind of, all right, we can get back together. And they went and got clean. And their first uh, record back is done with mirrors. But no one buys that record. You know, that's that's not all over MTV. You don't hear any of the songs on Done With Mirrors on the radio, like, ever. Not at the time, not in classic rock now. After their big comebacks, like, oh, you might have missed this one from Done With Mirrors. No, no one ever said that, you know. Then, in 1986, Rick Rubin's like, hey, Run DMC, if you want to sample Walk This Way and do kind of a rap cover of it, why don't we get Aerosmith to participate? we got to have their permission anyway, right? So not only do they get the permission, but they get Steven Tyler to come and do a little singing on it. They get Joe Perry to play a little bit of guitar in it. They put them in the video. And that was, again, I've said this before and say it again, right? It was huge for hip hop. It was huge to get hip hop into the suburbs to kids like us. And it was really big for Run DMC. But ultimately, it was much, much, much bigger for Aerosmith for Run DMC to do Walk This Way and put them in their video. Correct. Yeah. I mean, like you said, done with mirrors. I can't remember who it was, whether it was, I think it was Tom Hamilton was talking about, you know, they're, they're excited. They get back together. We're going to write this record. And for some reason you put everything in reverse on the cover. Like you were supposed to hold it to a mirror and seems like this, it just didn't work. It was just a bad idea. So you're right. I mean, you kind of, I mean, I guess they toured for that. Probably. Maybe. I don't have, I don't even remember that record coming out in 85. No. I don't remember any videos. I don't remember anything about it. I remember Walk This Way. And then it was like, because you, you wanted to see Run DMC, they, they were right. the, the hot, fresh new thing. And then it's like, oh yeah, there was this band called Aerosmith and they were huge in the 70s. And that's a really good song and it's a good groove and they look cool you know, on stage with the Run DMC guys. Mm -hmm. And then you're right. And then they roll into this record and then boom. Kaboom. Because, <laughs> you know, Draw the Line, which is still them being pretty badass rock stars, but the, the wheels are starting to come off, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's got the song Draw the Line, which I love. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily their best. It sells 2 million copies. Then the next one's Night in the Ruts. It's going down a little further. There are some Aerosmith fans who really like this. Yeah. But compared to Toys in the Attic and some of the and Rocks and some of the other stuff, it's not nearly as good. And so maybe it sells a million, maybe not quite a million. Then Joe and Brad leave. They do Rock in a Hard Place. Did it go gold? Maybe. Maybe <laughs> it goes gold just on the strength that it's an Aerosmith. And then the new one, Done with Mirrors. I think maybe it goes gold, but mm -hmm. again, it's just because people are buying Aerosmith, right? Right. I mean, which is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, a lot of people would be excited to sell 500,000 copies, but to Aerosmith, it's a it's a swing and a miss. You're right. Probably most of those sales came from people who were fans that just picked the album up because they wanted to hear something new. 
And then that was it. And then that was it, right? Okay. So then, all right. So those those four albums, those are their four last albums. They did some greatest hits. Look, the, the Aerosmith greatest hits album is like they came out in 1980 or 81, whatever that was, is mm. diamond or, or double diamond or something like that. They sold a ton of those. They did some classics live stuff, which were kind of like bootlegs, but not really, a little later in the um decade. But for the most part, those four albums. That's about 4 million US and each one is kind of less than the one before it. Mm-hmm. And then you get into Permanent Vacation with the boost from Run DMC. It's like, oh no, here we go. You know, <laughs> 5 million in the US alone, something like 8 million overall. Then it's Pump sells even more. It's like 10 mm-hmm. million overall. Then it's Get a Grip, one of the biggest selling albums of all time, 22 million diamond in the u.s alone (laughs) and then nine lives which is actually one i I didn't get because at that point i was it was like i was over aerosmith like i had outgrown them you know like i was psyched about permanent vacation pump and then get a grip get a grip was huge when we were living together in college Mm. man yeah and i think by the time nine lives came out they they had kind of figured out the new aerosmith formula and the songs kind right. of all sounded the same. So yeah, it, 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 for us, it had passed it by at that point in time. But yeah, Get a Grip was huge. I mean, like you said, it, they had a couple of uh, couple of big hits off of that, and that just that just came rolling out. I think that was huge, just out of the box. Very big, you know. Like they yeah. they they reestablished themselves with Permanent Vacation. Pump was even bigger, and they had they had three big singles off Permanent Vacation, but I think they had five or six off of Pump. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they're also boosted by, you know, they're doing a lot of videos now, obviously, Geffen and John Talabra probably deserves more credit for Aerosmith's success than Steven Tyler and Joe Perry put <laughs> together, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, well, it, from 1986 on, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know. And, and it's interesting, too, because I didn't realize that Dumb with Mirrors was, was produced by Ted Templeman of... Uh, Van Halen fame. Van Halen fame, and even he couldn't help them over that hump. Right, and Bruce Fairbairn. Uh, who we actually talked about a couple of weeks ago when we were talking with Martin Popoff on our BOC episode, because he did produce BOC and he produced Bon mm-hmm. Jovi, Slippery When Wet, but he produced these three albums, Permanent Vacation, Pump, and Get a Grip. And that's, I mean, overall, man, that's like 40 million albums sold altogether. <laughs> it's it, it's unbelievable, right? So Not his place run. is... Yeah, his place is pretty well set. You know, he also worked with people like Poison and you know, people you would know, people who were successful at the time, you know. So so he had a big hand in it. But, you know, getting the videos out and having the making of Pump, which was a video kind of showing behind the scenes when they were in Canada, recording it, doing the sessions and stuff like that. Some of that footage was used in the videos they used. I'm specifically thinking about what it takes, the video. Okay. But, but I think they used them in a couple of of the different videos there. And so, you know, it just, it, it, they primed the pump and then they're in the Wayne's World 2 soundtrack and they're in the movie, you know? And so by the time Get a Grip comes and they get Alicia Silverstone to be in all their videos, like crying and crazy and all that stuff, they're huge. They're bigger than they ever were because the young kids like, hey, this Aerosmith band is cool and they've got great tunes. Whereas the older people or the people who skewed older in their tastes like you and me, were like, yeah, this is a classic band from the 70s. And they're back, and you can listen to their old stuff and their new stuff all together. And especially since I think it was what was it like ninety one? They put out uh, they put out the Pandora's box, 
So that was kind of a, that was big for us because it kind of, it reintroduced us to the old stuff, right? but it was, it was technically new. So that was, that was fun because really, like you said, that's what we skew toward. I mean, I, I like permanent vacation. I like pump, but if I had to only listen to part of the catalog, it would be the older stuff. Yeah. Because that's, the that's the just the, all day long. Correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And because it's awesome, that's why, and it's so good, you know. But but they're on a roll at that point. I mean, the big ones, greatest hits came out, so like six and a half million in the U.S., maybe ten million worldwide. Nine Lives, four or five million in the U.S., eleven million, something like that worldwide. A little south of Sanity, I think I didn't buy that live album because I thought the cover was goofy. Um, but. <laughs> Uh, it, it looks like it's actually, and, and it's not taken from one show. It's taken from many shows mm -hmm. on two different tours. So it's really almost like a greatest hits live of the era. Don't know why I didn't really get it. I guess it was 30 bucks at the time. And I'm like, yeah, goofy cover. And we've got plenty of air. So it's not like I didn't have those songs, right? I, I had right. every single solo, I mean, a studio album that they were playing off. So I don't know. But between Geffen and Kalodner and MTV, plus the boys being sober, it really brought them back to the forefront. But the, honestly, the real story about Permanent Vacation is them working with outside writers for the first time. That's the story right. of the record. And, and so, and, and I think that was John Kalodner, yes. his idea. So how do you, how do you pitch that? Like, fellas, you know, you got, you got a lot of heat coming off the, the Walk This Way Run DMC project. You know, it's time to make another record. Okay, we've got some songs. Listen, I've got an idea. How about we bring some other? How about we bring some heavy hitters in here and really put something together that people will like? I don't know. That's the first time they've used outside writers. I mean, the the people that they picked up were had written hits in the past, so it wasn't like I don't know who this guy is. I mean, Desmond Child had already had big hits. Huge uh, Holly hits. Knight, Jim Valance. All I, of them. I, I, huge, yeah, I wonder. Huge. I wonder how that went. Were they originally like, for, you know, screw you? We only we write our own songs, or is it like, you know? Maybe we need to change something up since since Done With Mirrors was such a dud. Probably so. Look, they're back and they're sober. And if you fail, your sobriety is really going to be tested, right? They don't mm -hmm. want to go back to that. It's like, okay, yeah, we want to hit. And Geffen wants them to have a hit. There's no doubt about it, right? So how do you do it? All right, let's mix it up. Let's bring in some songwriters. And yeah, Jim Valance, who's he written with? Oh, a couple of people may have heard of. Rod Stewart, Carly Simon, Ozzy Osbourne, Alice Cooper, you know, Kiss. Scorpions, you know, wrote, wrote What About Love for Heart. Big hits for Brian Adams, like Run to You, Cuts Like a Knife, Heaven, Summer of 69. I mean, did Brian Adams ever write any of his own songs? I don't know. You know? <laughs> Seems like Jim Valance did it all, you know. So you know, he, he he wrote some big ones. Holly Knight's worked with so many people, and she's worked with Kiss. And she wrote um, Love's a Battlefield by Pat Benatar. She wrote the best, like simply the best, better than all the rest. Okay. That's Holly Knight, you know. Yeah. Better Be Good to Me, another Tina Turner song, you know, wrote The Warrior. Uh, it did Invincible for Pat Benatar. So she's she's written a lot of songs. She's had a lot of hits over the years. And of course, Desmond Child just has the magic touch, even though he didn't write magic touch. We'll get to that. <laughs> Desmond Child, songwriter, Hall of Fame. I mean, Wrote I Hate Myself for Loving You for Joan Jett. Wrote You Give Love a Bad Name, Living on a Prayer, Bad Medicine for Bon Jovi. We're Poisoned by Alice Cooper, which I really like. Ricky Martin's Living La Vida Loca. I mean, the guy just goes and goes. He's just a natural songwriter. And so, yeah, I do think that Stephen and Joe were pretty hesitant to work with outside writers. 
or okay, but do you Kalodner's talking to you and you and he's talking about these people that we could bring in and then you know you start to hear about Bon Jovi slippery when wet. Mm-hmm. Mm, now I wouldn't hate to have a record like that. That would be fantastic. That was all over the radio. I mean, zillions of copies sold. I don't know how many times platinum that was. I mean, 12 million or something, I think, ridiculous. So, yeah, if you're, you know, I think especially Steven Tyler is a, he's a rock and roll guy, but he's also a businessman. He also smells money in the air. And I think somebody was talking about one time, like he thinks every song that they have should be a single. So I think (laughs) it was, I mean, was he looking for, the pyromania i'm not pyromania but hysteria deal where like you know eight of the 12 songs would have been singles or something like that yeah i think at that point in time he's really like we could let's make this as big as possible and for pump he about got that man yeah which is only two years later you know but still (laughs) i mean if you think about it and i'm going to scroll down here while we're talking about it but okay we've got 10 songs on pump love in an elevator was a big song Jeannie's Got a Gun is a big song. The Other Side is a big song. What It Takes is a big song. And then there's, you know, there's a couple of others on there like uh, Young Lust or If I Any Fine, Monkey on My Back that you might have heard on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, he, he got maybe half the tracks became singles off of that. And they were rolling to end up the 80s. They were on fire yeah doing huge tours they were legitimately not not a nostalgia act legitimately big hit makers where people who had never heard songs uh, from the 70s would show up and watch these shows yeah absolutely you know and they they looked great they're all in good mm-hmm. shape again they're, they put down the drugs and the booze steven is at his all-time best you know um not wasted look he i can't Tell you he's a better frontman than Mick Jagger because that's a little blasphemous. But can you name me, maybe other than Mick Jagger, anyone who's even close to being a frontman? I'm not talking about a singer. I'm not talking about a songwriter. I'm talking about a frontman who entertains and commands the stage like Steven Tyler. I mean, in his prime, you could you could throw Diamond Dave up there. As as the you know the the master of ceremonies. Okay. Yeah, I mean he's and the thing is, like Diamond Dave, Steve is always on. Like I've never seen him talk where he's just like, yeah, man, you know what's up. He's always scabbing a boop bop beep bop bop. It's not the cough that carries you off; it's the coffin they carry you off in. Hey, okay. He's yeah, got a just, thousand of those. Right. Okay. And it's, it's always yeah. He's always on. Always. always. And the, and that's that's what works because then you have the like you're talking about Mick Jagger. You have the other side of the coin with Keith Richards. You have the other side of the coin with Joe Perry, who's, hey, man, how's it going? He's just cool and relaxed, and he doesn't have to be crazy and outgoing because he he's the, the rock and roll cool side to Steven Tyler's manic, you know, look at me, yeah. look at me, look at me. He's the other side of the coin, yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and Steven's always got something colorful or something very mm-hmm. regal or crazy. Joe's basically always dressed in black with yeah. his shirt open. Um, you know, it was just always ripped. He was always tan. I don't think he's real tall. I went backstage. I actually got to, to shake Steven Tyler's hand. And he's maybe 5'9". I don't know if Joe Perry's 5'5". Five, five. You didn't know whether to shake his hand or pet him? <laughs> he walked by. I didn't get to meet him. He kind of walked by at about 20 yards from me, and he waved to us or whatever. And, like, he's wearing boots, and he is so short, dude. But he's another guy, too. I mean, he's not, he's not on, you know – 
flipping out showman on, but I've never seen him in sweats. You always see him dressed no. in the nines. He, yeah, he always looks like a rock star because that's exactly what he is. He's about the coolest guy in the history of rock and roll. And what I did like is, you know, around this time, like you listen to the White Snakes and people like that, there's a lot of shredding and some crazy mm-hmm. guitar electricity coming out. He didn't really try to copy that. You know, he's like, look, I'm, I just play my blue stuff. And I'm still a badass, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. need to, you know, be hammering and hammering on and pulling off and all that kind of stuff. I can, I can just play these badass rips and then do cool solos without being Ingebae Malmsteen or Steve Vai. And I credit him for that because he didn't try to change what he did. That would have been horrible because he, I mean, could he have played like that? Probably, Probably if he tried, but again, you know, are you doing your own thing? Or are you trying to fit in with everybody else? And I'm glad that he didn't. Um, you know, you're talking about him being cool. There was a there was an interview on Howard Stern where they just showed up, like they literally just came just into. The, in. they, yeah, they walked in. They're like they were on the air, and they're like, uh, "Joe Perry and Stephen Tyler are here." What? Yeah, send them in. Yeah, just talking back and forth, and he was talking about the woman in the love in an elevator video that he's making out with. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, that's my wife. Oh, get out of here. You said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then, and then Tyler's like, tell him the best part. Well, yeah, I met her when I was, uh, when I was in the halfway house, wait, you weren't even, you weren't a rock star. No, I was, I was kind of down and out. He's like, that's it. I can't even take this anymore. <laughs> You're the coolest person I've ever met. So good to be a rock star. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. No. So, so they brought in all these outside writers. And so, and look, Brad Whitford can write songs. Tom mm-hmm. Hamilton has certainly written songs within Am- uh, Aerosmith. Sweet Emotion, of course, being one of them. Sometimes they will do songs as a band, and there's one of those on here. But there's only one Tyler Perry only. And track everything else is, uh, well, I mean, for the most part, I, are, are outside writers. I think Steven Tyler did St. John on his own. Mm-hmm. And the, the last one, the movie, which is it's basically an instrumental. Right. All five guys get get credit for it but you got jim vance desmond child and holly knight on most all the songs in one way or another listening to the ugly american werewolf in london podcast but i remember i just look i remember this coming out and it being a huge deal a big deal aerosmith is back oh those guys who did the run dmc video next year Mm -hmm. that last year well they got their own stuff going on, and look how cool the videos are. What I didn't realize is that Hangman Jury was the first single. I had no recollection of that. Yeah, I was trying to. I was. I went through the singles trying to think about when I. I mean, I remember. See, now I can't remember. I don't remember Hangman Jury coming out. I don't. I remember Angel being massive. Dude right. looks like a lady came out first, but now I'm like, do I remember hearing that first or nah, I don't know? It's I, like I, Angel, I and then you remember hearing Dude. You can't read. It's, it's, it was our yeah. freshman year of high school. We had other stuff going on. Besides, <laughs> what's this band from the 70s with their big comeback doing? You know, we, had, <laughs> we had other stuff in our brains then. Yeah, but I was watching a lot of MTV at that point, and these guys were all over it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like you said, they had they had the it was so this was 87 so this was right before grunge they had the perfect rock star look for 1987 88 yeah it looked amazing and they they pulled it off and they kicked ass with it all right so let's let's start walking through the record here we as we mentioned it was produced by Bruce Fairbairn who would do this one and the next two it's on Geffen and uh it was recorded in uh 
in mostly in British Columbia, the, in Vancouver, where I think they would also make pump. And they did a little bit more in, in New York City. But John Collager is, is responsible for getting all these songwriters in. And the first one, Hearts Done Time, interesting. It's a Joe Perry and Desmond Child head track. Mm-hmm. So not, not Steve and Joe and Desmond, just Joe and Desmond, which is interesting because the three of them would write a track eventually called Dude Looks Like a Lady. And Steven would write a track, uh, track with Desmond called Angel. So right. when Desmond's writing your tunes, they're going to be the singles. But this is one of the three he wrote, and it wasn't a single. But it's a fun way to kick off the album. Yeah, it, it kind of it starts off, I don't know, were they whales or something? That's kind of an interesting... Sirens? Yeah, or Star- something. <laughs> yeah, and then the... Yeah, it, and the it, sirens it, kick in. It's a, it's a high-octane song. I mean, I kind of... I think... I mean, I've got a, I've got a note here that, that says there's no real hook. Mm-hmm. In here and that in there and that's maybe why this was never a single. I mean, it's a good way to start the record. It gets you going, but there isn't really that element that would make it a single. Yeah, there are a lot of pieces in it that make it yeah. cool. But overall, I'm not sure it is. You know, it's it's got Stephen beginning going, yeah. you know, which is a signature of his. And he does it big time a little bit later in the record. You talk about a woman whose man was out at midnight. He's maybe going around to pay her a little visit. You know, very technical kind of Aerosmith lyrics. <laughs> but classic guitar attack, you can tell that they're trading leads, Brad yes. and Joe, on this song, which makes it kind of cool. And and I think that's one thing that Brad Whitford does not get enough credit for. I mean, Joe Perry is the star. We get that. He's no lead guitar. Mm-hmm. He plays the solos. He plays the the slide and everything else. And he's but great if, looking. But that doesn't help. <laughs> you know? That doesn't hurt either. Right. Unfortunately yeah. for Brad, he he is not as good looking. Yeah. He kind of looks like a plumber's assistant a little bit. You know, of, yeah. Yeah. Kind, kind of, of been sitting star. at the end of the bar for a while, yeah. you know? Kind of I down. was in this big band. You were? Really? Because you don't look it. <laughs> yeah. But if you listen to what he's doing, he he's very complimentary to what Perry is doing. And I think he he's a dude who knows uh, he knows his role in the band. I was gonna say his place, but that's not really that's not fair. He knows he knows what he's supposed to be doing and he fills in nicely around Joe Perry. Absolutely, absolutely true. The two of them together are fantastic. I would take them as a duo against mm-hmm. Tipton and Downing of Judas Priest. I would take them against Davey and what's his name from uh Adrian Iron Smith. Adrian and Dave from Iron mm-hmm. Maiden. I would take him against them. Mm-hmm. I would take him against Jill Walsh and Don Felder from the Eagles. I mean Izzy and Slash. Easily. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they they you know they kick ass on this, you know. Yeah. And, but the thing is, it, it's a little messy, I, I think, especially towards the end. But it, it it's cool. They come back to the chorus. And, and Joe Perry's definitely killing it at the end with some great stuff. It, it's hard rock. It's Aerosmith. It, it is it is a punch in the mouth, like let's get going, but it's not a sink. Yeah, and I think the the other thing too is the the lyrics on this are a little weak. You know, mad woman had a man. Okay, we got it. Thank you. Yeah, it's just it's more just the it's more so it's not an instrumental. You know, like you don't it, it's it's just kind of thrown in there because you need vocals on there. It's not you're not really breaking any new ground with this one. Right, not telling an amazing story, right? Right, exactly. And th- and there's no really great turn of phrase or anything like that. It's just okay. 
which Stephen is really, really good at. He's got more turn of phrase going mm-hmm. on than anyone I've ever seen in my yeah. life. But it's it's just kind of not there. But still a cool way to start off the album. And not sure. everything Desmond touches turns to platinum. <laughs> okay, next song, Magic Touch. Mm-hmm. Where do you come out on Magic Touch? Really like this. I really like this song. I'm surprised this wasn't a single. I can't remember when I first got to this, but this is definitely a track where you listen to it when you're listening to the whole record and say, well, why have I not heard this before? Why was this not all over the radio? I mean, it's got a great hook. It's the drums at the beginning are fantastic. I, I don't know why it was. I know, don't know why they didn't release it. So this is written by Steve, Joe and Jim Valance. Mm-hmm. This is my favorite song on the album. I would, I would agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of my favorite Aerosmith songs of all time this is you know it's it's so it's so good I, it may be the best non-single in their catalog uh mm-hmm. it, it's it's so it's so it's just catchy i do remember when i first heard it and it was when we were living together i'm pretty sure it was our freshman year i would I, say i would i would say that also yeah i went over to rock i went over to see rob and matt who lived upstairs at rock okay and rob of course is from boston so you know aerosmith he's a big fan they put this on they put on the first song, and Hearts Then Time, like, yeah, okay, and song's okay, yeah, whatever. Then this comes on, Magic Touch, with that big riff. Yeah. And the, you're right about the drums. Yeah. song's amazing this is the best song can you play that again you know which is not <laughs> cool but i'm like just rewind that i want to hear that again you know <laughs> it's so so good now steven is harmonizing with himself a little bit which is great on the record you can't reproduce that live mm. the same way but it sounds great and, and then the solo isn't incredible but it's good it fits the song and then it brings you back to the driving you never know what you got till they take it away. And it's mm-hmm. that driving beat with him kind of screaming those lyrics. Yeah. It was kind of, you know, I'm coming ready or not going to get you someday. So good i love it so much i can listen to it every day i honestly yeah this, this is one of my favorite songs that no one knows about when we used right. to dream about having a band and being rock stars we're like we can't just do covers you know that's no way to do it we got to have our own stuff i'm like yeah but we got to mix in some songs that people won't know who maybe they'll think we did it and this was always on the set list man thinking because no one knows this song so we do some originals and we do this they won't know that it's not our song right holy metallica maybe Maybe mm-hmm. we could have been Metallica, okay? Mm-hmm. We shouldn't have studied so much. Oh, wait, right. we weren't studying. I was going to say, <laughs> speak for yourself. We should have sat um, around drinking beer listening to records so much. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do like that, you know, that when he comes back in, and you, you you mentioned it before, you never know what you got until they take it away. I'm like, well, you know, whatever. 
wait a minute. What are you talking about? Are you talking about like when you got out of your mind on drugs and spent all your money and, you know, hey, I was a big rock star and now I have nothing. And so is it a throwaway lyric or is it is it a hearkening back to something else? I don't know. But that's I like that. I like that sentiment of, you know, be grateful for what you have, because when you don't, you're going to really miss it. Yeah, it's like Cinderella's don't know what you got till it's gone. Just kind of right. said in a different way in a more mm-hmm. upbeat, fun style, you know. So great song, Overlooked. If you don't know Magic Touch, you got to listen to that right Yeah, this absolutely. And then we morph into Ragdoll. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, we had two straight ahead four rockers. It's not like Ragdoll's a slow song, but it's it's more mid-tempo. It's got the boom, boom. And then here comes the slide by Joe Perry, badass Joe Perry slide, all through it, great groove, great funk to this song. When all else fails, hit him with the chorus right off the bat. Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would. I, this is one of those songs where the okay. So the problem with this record is that you've got three pretty massive hits off of this for classic rock. I mean, you can still hear. You turn the radio on today, you can still hear. Probably, you can definitely hear Ragdoll. You can definitely hear Dude Looks Like a Lady. Every day they throw an angel every once in a while, but this song was massive and still Huge. is today. I didn't know if I could really listen to this anymore because I'm like, I've heard it so many times. I don't really know if this song would be that great without the slide guitar in it. No the way. slide makes this song. Totally. It, it's yeah. the whole song, if you ask me. And Holly Knight was the one who actually changed it from Rag Time to Rag Doll. Uh, okay. And, and this was Joe, Steve, and Jim Valance and Holly Knight. I guess the three of them had put it together. And it was Rag Time for Steven. And and Kalandra's like, nah, we got to fix that. Holly. <laughs> Come in here and fix that. <laughs> Punch this up. And she comes in, she comes in and, and changes it to Rag Doll. And then they change some of the other lyrics. And, and suddenly you have a huge hit on your hands. And mm. the video was huge. It was their fourth release. It was their last single off the record. But at this point, they're like, yeah, we got a hit on our hands. Let's spend some money on the on the video, right? So you've got them. I think they're in New Orleans for this. At least it looks that way. Of course, it could have been a soundstage, but I mean, it, it looks like they're marching down the street in New Orleans. It looks like the girls are in the windows, kind of like they would be in New Orleans, you know? Uh, and one of those scenes, it looks like they're at Tipitina's on stage. Yeah, and it, I mean, there's definitely a, there's definitely shots of Bourbon Street, you know, with people on them, that you know, mm-hmm. like rooftop shots down onto the street. So, I mean, it could be. Yeah, I remember I went back and watched this video for this show. It was the first time I ever remember seeing the the what would become the classic Toxic Twins shirt. He's got mm-hmm. the sleeves cut out. I'm like, wow, that looks really cool. You're wearing it right now. Fantastic. That's right. And he had these black leather pants on with this giant fringe mm-hmm. coming off it. And I'm thinking, can I pull that look off in high school? Like, man, that looks so cool. I could wear no, those. I could not. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. You say that now. But... You'll be run out of the parking lot. <laughs> of those things. Are you kidding me? I'm not saying you should do it. I'm just telling you what's going to happen. Man. I'm just going to warn you right now. 
told you yeah. this was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, he, everybody looks cool in the video. It look it's it's it sounds great, it, but it's that slide. And then and then in the uh, in the when he's playing the solo, mm-hmm. it goes back and forth between him on stage playing and then him just kind of sitting in a chair with the slide on, on the street. It. Yeah, on I know. the street. Yeah, you know, one foot on the amp playing. And I'm like, man, you're so cool, Joe Perry. Six six solo too, so good. Yeah. I mean, and he plays slide in some other songs. You know, it's like this is you say Joe Perry slide, I say Ragdoll. Man. Yeah, that that's absolutely it. And there's you know, it's a very 80s Geffen music video. They're mm-hmm. on stage. There are a lot of slutty girls hopping around doing different things in the video, you know. And then, of course, at the end, <laughs> you gotta love, baby, won't you do me like you've done before? <laughs> like just putting it right out there, you know, like no ambiguity about what this might be about. At the end, he's he's kissing the girl goodbye on her front porch. She goes and jumps in his cobra. He's just yeah. driving down the street. And every girl's coming out of every house as he drives down the street. Like, bye, Steven. Oh, bye, sweetheart. I love you. Here comes it. Oh, bye. Oh, yeah, you. I remember you from two nights ago. Bye, bye. You know, I'll see you later. Every single girl's coming out. I'm like, <laughs> I don't think you can make that video today. But in the '80s, <laughs> that's all videos were, man. That's just so much fun. <laughs> well, and and when you think of what it would become with the, you know, when grunge hits and everybody's so sad and dark and gray, and you've got, yeah, that's what, what do you do with your life? I go out and I play on stage in New Orleans, and then I go and then you know spend the night with whoever and tomorrow night it'll be somebody else and i don't care because that's what i do and i drive a nice car and i wear nice clothes and i am a rock star and i'm not sad at all at all about any of this this Mm -hmm. is what i signed up for and to see steven in these videos playing it up whether he's in in the video what i would call the video part where you're kind of acting you know Mm -hmm. like he's he's kissing the girl or whatever or you're on the stage part where you're actually singing performing but obviously he's acting, he's playing a role there too. He's right. the best at it. He's amazing at it. And it just seems authentic. He's doing these things with his hands. He's doing his things with the scarves, you know, with his body, you know, uh, you know, maybe he's humping the microphone stand or something like that. Yes, it's all very sexual, but it's also, there's a point to all of it. You know, it's, it's, it's orchestrated in such a way and he's doing it to bring the crowd in. And I'm telling you, there's no one else as, there's no one better. There may be someone as good, but there's no one better. And I think he doesn't take a break, even when even when Perry is soloing or anything else. Like he's he's not just like standing back, like oh, I'm just going to get some water and you know stand back and watch. No, he's you know, like you said, if he's on the other side dancing around, he's throwing the microphone around, he's you know mixing it up with the other members of the band. Yeah, he does not take a break. He's no. there to put on a show for you. He is the price of admission. Yeah, and then the band is badass behind him. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of the way it is. All right. Track number four on the first side, Simaria. Now, I don't remember this song real well, probably because it has a little bit of a strange name. Yeah, but another it, yeah, another Jim Valance song. Yeah, uh, I with mean, the Toxic Twins. Correct. I mean, it could have been a single. I mean, it, it kind of has that vibe, maybe. It kind of sounds too like weird. Names too well, weird. Yeah, to it, yeah, because yeah, you'd have to you'd have to explain, to explain that every it, time. Yeah, which by the way, the definition is someone who has a beautiful personality. So even if we're on the ugly American werewolf, maybe we're beautiful in some ways, Gary. I like to think so. That's probably not true. Uh, but probably anyway, not. yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to have to explain that every single time you play this track. Hey, remember, God, yeah, and yeah. It's, yeah, it's not a place. It's not anything like that. It kind of sounds like he's singing along with the beat. Mm-hmm. I think this is another one 
to me like the first track where it's it doesn't really have a hook and and the lyrics are kind of like walking on the line of a razor's edge taking it as far as it goes eh, okay yeah. Yeah. Like, they can yeah. be about drugs it could be about a lot of different yeah things, yeah know? it's it's just it just doesn't have again you've got you're coming off of you know this uh, you're coming off of ragdoll it's like <laughs> have another huge one after that probably not you got to take yeah. a break because we'll go into the next one in a minute well, that's right yeah yeah, yeah. that was driving tom hamilton bass to begin this mm-hmm. that i like it was great riff and some good interplay between joe and brad again it's it's classic aerosmith but it's also very 80s especially yeah. with like the guitars during the chorus and stuff like that like this sounds very 80s again that's easy for me to say now like at the time, I probably said, "Ooh, that's really cool." Now, now it's like, "Yeah, I think you probably did that." The eighty-five to eighty-nine. Era. Yeah, just just kind of a it, it's it's kind of a track where you, sandwiched in between uh, between three and five, mm-hmm. it's going to get lost. Right, right. Because number five is "Dude Looks Like a Lady," which mm-hmm. was a huge hit, and it was their second. It's their second single. To me, it's their first single. Okay, because they they didn't yeah. make a video for Hangman Jury, whereas, you know, Dude Looks Like a Lady, they absolutely did. And it was backed with Simariah, but also on the 12-inch, it was backed by Once Is Enough, which is kind of a country song okay. uh, written by Richie Suppa, who did uh, Chip Away at the Stone. So I'm like, all right, well, hey, if you wrote Chip Away at the Stone, you know I love that song. Mm-hmm. But Once Is Enough is a country song, and and it does not belong on the album, because it just doesn't match you know what i mean i saw a video of steven doing it with willie nelson at farm aid and i'm like okay well that's cool good cause willie's a great dude it's cool that you did that but i i would never want to hear them play it live <laughs> you go because they have so that? many other songs they have yeah. so many other songs they can do but no dude looks like a lady released september 22nd 1987 of course also written with the help of the great Desmond Child. Yeah, he had a, uh, like you said, he had a rare miss with Hearts Doing Time. This was not, this was a home run. Yeah. U.S. Mainstream Rock 4, Dance Club Songs 41, Billboard Hot 114, you know, Canada Top 22, you know. So uh, it's uh, it, it did awfully well. And, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, I think I think it kind of originated a little bit with, like, they saw this hot blonde down at the end of the bar. Mm-hmm. Like, ooh, check her out. Let's see that blonde. Turn around. Yeah, that's Vince Neil. Hi. <laughs> yes. Which is, which is how the video starts. Who is that dude that's in the videos? The guy with the beard? That's Sean Kalodner. Okay, that's Kaladner. Okay, yeah. yeah. So he was in a couple of those, including the guy who is at the wedding who looks, he doesn't look like a lady at all. Right. But uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, I guess it was Vince Neil. And uh, here we go again with When in Doubt, hit him with the chorus right off the bat. Just go right into it.
There you go, Desmond. Yeah. But no, this yeah. is the first time you see Kalander in the video. And he ends up making appearances in a lot of their videos and mm -hmm. in a wedding dress for whatever yeah. reason. <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, it's the first time we ever saw him in here. Uh, of course, we, we cut, you know, they cut to some chicks, like some hot girls who were like construction workers. And they, you know, maybe cut to some, they cut to Steven in a bustier, yeah. you know, singing in pink. You know, they put him in the, in the makeup and stuff for that, too. Here's something for you, Jackson. In watching the video, there's a big A-frame that's like their stage, you know, that like kind of goes okay. up past Joey. It's not dissimilar to the big A from the Asia Alpha Tour just four years before, who were just happened to be on Geffen, who just happened to be managed by John Kalodner, their A&R guy. I wonder if like that stuff was laying around or that was... I so mean, they gave him an idea like, oh, we could do this and make a big A. <laughs> it could be. And you'd figure you figure by this point in time, most people would have kind of forgotten about that or you wouldn't make that connection right off the bat. So, yeah, maybe it was like, hey, I've, I know what the set piece is for this one. I got it in the garage at home. But look, Joe Perry's badass on this. He's got a mm. killer, killer solo on it. And he's he even came out. He's like, look, we can't we can't offend gay people. I don't want to you know make this like, oh, is a dude looks like lady. Oh, tell me that I'm out of here. Uh, and Jasmine's like, no, no, look, A, I'm in the gay community and I'm not offended. We're going to write this song. And B, it's it's more about like, dude looks like a lady, but I'm okay with it. We're going to go through with this anyway. And Aerosmith were masculine enough, you know, and, and comfortable enough for themselves to say, yeah, we'll, we'll sing that song. There's a quote from Desmond Child where it says, every four or five-year-old child in America was able to sing this song. I was like, do you realize this is a song about a tranny? <laughs> Yeah, it's catchy as hell. But yeah, when you listen to it, it is it was very progressive for 1987 to have any of these topics put out there. Absolutely. And then right before Joe's big solo, Stephen's going, do me, do me, do yeah. me, do me. And then he grabs his nuts, you know, right there in the middle of the video. I'm like, good <laughs> Lord, they're not even trying to hide this, are they? You know? No. It's a great, it's a great Aerosmith song. It's a big hit for them. And it's fun. It's a little tongue in cheek. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, you're not trying to insult anybody. You're just trying to uh, tell a story that maybe uh, it doesn't happen to you every day. <laughs> well, and the other thing too, is you got to realize that it's, it was, it was based on a real event. I'm sure these guys, they live a lifestyle that even the part that you know is crazy. The part that you don't is even crazier. crazier yeah. There was a, there was a, uh, I was listening to a radio show one time and Ace was, Ace Fraley was one of the guests and mm -hmm. they showed something that was shocking or whatever. And people were freaking out. And the, the one of the hosts said, Hey, Ace, you know, you're right over there. What's going on? You're not really saying anything. And he just said, nah, I've seen weirder shit on tour. Right. <laughs> and, and I can only imagine like, this is not, Again, anything that you think you know about what happens on tour, you have no idea. It's it, it crazy. Pretty crazy. Out yes. There. Yeah. All right. So we move on from there. Another great big hit. It was all over the radio, all over MTV, their first single. Now we go to the sixth song on the album, last song on the first side, and that's St. John. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is one Stephen wrote by himself. It's an interesting one. It's it's kind of weird. You know, it, it starts off with a bit of thump of the bass, and it's kind of like a, he's telling a story, like he's strolling down a a back alley talking about he's a private eye. I had this case one night. Yeah. yeah. She was a lovely lady. You know, that's not what he's saying, but that's kind of the vibe that it gives off, you know? And it's interesting too, because he's, yeah, it, he, it starts off with the symbols. And I mean, he famously is a drummer. So I'm wondering, you know, does he, is he playing this? I mean, they don't really give credits on this one as who does what I wonder it. I mean, it sounds a lot. 
I, I don't know. I always have a hard time with when one person writes the song, like really you wrote everything yourself, mm-hmm. but it definitely sounds like it's, it's kind of more on the simple side. It's just, you know, you've kind of got the, you got the symbols, you got the riff. It's a real nice change of pace. It slows it way down from, right. from dude looks like a lady. Yeah. It, this is, this is kind of a cool album track too, to find. Come on, boy. The tape ain't rolling. One, two, one, two, 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 two. Yeah, it's a good way to kind of wrap up the side mm-hmm. after like so many of those. I mean, the first five songs, none of them are really slow, right? They're no, all no, pretty straight ahead rock songs, you know. So, yeah, you know, and, and I don't know. Here's the thing: it's Stephen is maybe talking to the microphone, uh, megaphone, or singing into a megaphone towards okay. the end of this. Yeah, Joe, Joe does some killer guitar work. I feel like and before they kind of bring it back together before the end. I mean. I don't love it, but it's not bad. And it was actually, it was the B-side of Ragdoll. Okay. Along with something called the Rockapella Ragdoll mix, which I, I actually didn't, I hate to tell you this, listeners, but I actually didn't take the time to listen to that mix because whatever. You're not going to make it better than the original, right? So <laughs> you had a mix, great. I'm glad you did. You know, I'm not listening to it, but it's 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 not my favorite, but it is as far as when you're setting up an album that has a certain flow to it, it makes sense to put it right here End mm-hmm. of side one. Yeah. Again, slow it down. Give you a little change of pace. You're right. And then we're going to get into get into side two. You can't have everything uh, sandwiched into one area of the record, or nobody would listen to the rest of it. Although, I mean, there's there's an argument for front loading, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. put your first three best songs one, two, three, right, and 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 hook them in that way. Get them interested. It's like, okay, well, this is pretty good. I might as well listen to the rest of this thing, which is only going to be a downer if those are your three best songs in the beginning. <laughs> but you don't want to necessarily hide one of your very best somewhere in the middle of the second side. I don't know. It's, there's a lot of theories on how to best put together a record. Although I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't argue with Kalodner. I would hey, put hey these, this is Tom and Zeus from Shout It Out Loudcast. Yeah. And you are listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. All right, so starting off the second side, or number seven, if you've got the CD like we did, it's Hangman Jury, allegedly mm-hmm. their first single. And I'll tell you, what was bigger than it being a single was they did MTV Unplugged, mm-hmm. and they did this song. Yeah, And th- this is a great song for MTV Unplugged, because it's basically an unplugged song anyway. You know, it's, it's kind of a down-home blues song. It's got a lot of heart from Steven in it. It's kind of got that lead belly Robert Johnson kind of feel to it. Yeah, and and like Mick Jagger, um, Tyler is a he's a very good harmonica player, and it's always cool to hear him blowing along there at the beginning. The slide is cool. Yeah, it's kind of like that that backwoods bluesy song. Yeah, it was awesome on Unplugged. It was, you know, and but you know when you hear the chorus, when love come tumbling down. Yes, Joe mm-hmm. sings background, but so does Stephen, and you can hear. Ah, you can hear yeah. Stephen. You can't do that live. You can't have Stephen backing Stephen up live. You know? But then they, they come back to it with a cool riff, more harmonica. It's not a typical Aerosmith song. 
but it is a cool one. And, yeah. and again, you're warming the second side up, now, right? You had to cool off the first side, you know, with St. John. Now you're warming it back up with Hangman Jury. Yeah, I like that it picks up at about the 129 mark. Um, because I think if the whole thing was was like the beginning, it would get old. But it, they do a good job at kind of changing it up and, and making it more rocking at the end. I agree. You know, it's it, it's longer than you think. It's like five and a half minutes right. long. It kind of yeah. has a couple of different shifts in there, which is you know interesting for a single, certainly a lead single. Yeah, that's it. I would. Yeah, if you if you told me this was a single and like Magic Touch wasn't, no, that's interesting. And then this was the first single. Okay, yeah. I I don't think either one of the, I would release this ahead of Ragdoll. Are you yeah, exactly. Me? You release this in front of dude looks like a lady. That doesn't make sense to me, but. <laughs> but I don't know. Speaking of dude looks like a lady, by the way, another reason that it may not be the same live is because throughout the whole thing is well, that's Steven going. Yeah. So maybe they have people come in and horns do that bit, you know, or maybe they pipe in that, but they don't really yeah. create that live because they can't have Steven sing that. Right. You, yeah. You either have to do it with the horns or have some kind of backing track. And then there's the whole, you know, backing track controversy of if you're piping that in, what else are you piping in? Right. Right. It's a big deal now. And Aerosmith is still going somehow, all five of them, all together. I can't believe Steven's still doing it. I can't believe Joey Kramer's still there. Are, is Joey Kramer still there? Is he not? I don't know. I heard I, there was some deal about how like he's had some he showed, issues. I know. Yeah. And he showed up and they're like, he's like, okay, I'm ready to play. And they're like, we're going to need you to kind of audition again. Like what? Like, you know, play along with the click track where it, mm -hmm. it you know, it so I don't know. I mean, he was mad because he thought he was ready to roll. I'd have to do, I'd have to look and see what, what the current state of this is, but yeah, he was having some problems. I bet. I mean, the thing is they're getting on. I mean, they're all kind of, Oh, now I mean, well, you know, they're in their mid seventies, right? Yeah, mid seventies. Joey Kramer, born on my birthday in nineteen fifty, so he's twenty three years older than me. So he's incredibly old. And look, once you're once the first number of your age is six, <laughs> and and you're a drummer, <laughs> you're in trouble, you know, yeah. because it's it's just physically difficult to do what you do. Once you're a seventy, I mean, a, you, you should be looking over your shoulder. Well, and to, and to play to play the tracks that he does. We're not talking about you know you're not playing blues you know with the shuffle with the little you know brushes. Right. I mean he's playing high octane rock and roll drumming. No, as Neil Peart said, look, I'm 64. When I'm 71, well, that's I can't do me anymore. Charlie mm -hmm. Watts is 71. I can play like Charlie Watts at 71. I can't play like me at 71. Right. Bill Ward of Black Sabbath is like, look, I I can't do it. I mean, I could do maybe two or three songs, but you want me to do an hour and a half, two hour show? I can't do it. You know, yeah, your wrists must just be all yeah. your knees. Hell. I mean, yeah. come on, man. You know, Peter Chris couldn't do a two hour kiss show. Now he could probably do two or three songs. But he couldn't do the whole thing. So if Joey's still going, God love him, you know, let, let him keep going because it's unbelievable how difficult it is to, to do this. And I'm just reading here. Something I did not know is that Kramer's Joey's second wife, Linda died. 
this year. Oh, geez. The day after his birthday. Mm. Uh, and she's, you know, almost 20 years younger than him. So I'm like, God, he's having a rough time. You know? So, hey, we're thinking about you, Joey. We're glad you're still in the band and still doing your thing. And that Aerosmith is still, still going somehow. All right, let's move on to the only track. Because Hangman Jury, Hangman Jury was written by the Toxic Twins and Jim Valance, mm-hmm. just like Simmeriah was, just like Magic Touch was. But Girl Keeps Coming Apart, this is the only Toxic Twins only and song on the record. Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. So you figure, oh, all right, this is going to kick ass. And it's like, well, <laughs> you'd be wrong. I don't love this. One. <laughs> it's It's not great. If there if there was a throwaway track, this would definitely have to be it for me. This is it, yeah. And and what you we were talking about him playing Joe Perry playing the guitar before, like Joe Perry. This is the one where he throws in the whammy, and it's yeah. like Ugh. maybe a little hammering, you know. Yeah, this definitely sounds to me. This definitely sounds the most eighties of all the songs. Like it's trying to sound like something else. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's gimmicky. To me, yes, and they're trying too many things, right? You know, I mean, uh, he Steven's talking a little bit to start over the harmonica, which means that's hard to play live. He's playing the harmonica and yeah. singing, can't do that, <laughs> right? Um, there's a lot of horns in it, mm-hmm. um, and horns are for Aerosmith, you know, for the most part. You're right, Joe's not quite shredding, but he's a lot closer than he ever really has been before, or would be after maybe doing some hammering and some fast stuff. I mean, there's some good jamming at the end. Actually, I think Joey's great. Not only in this song, I think Joey is solid through this whole album. I think Joey mm-hmm. is really on it, but you kind of have to be because Steven's a drummer too. So it's like, <laughs> do it like this. Joey, I need you to do it here. Hold on, I'll be right in there. And then he'll show yeah. him how to do it. But uh, look, it's too much. They're trying too many things to make this like stew. And it's 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 not it's not that great to me. It's, it's probably my least favorite on the album. Yeah, and I have a note here that says it this is interesting that this is the only Toxic Twins song on the record because it sounds like somebody else wrote this. It sounds like they, you know, they got handed this and like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess we'll include this. I know. I know. It's like, okay, we're going to hear something like from back in the day. No, this is totally off the wall. Yeah. And it's not just upbeat. It's kind of frantic. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not even just fast paced. It's like kind of crazy all over the place. It's, I, I think if they could do one over, my guess is they would pick that. One. Yeah. And then, and then my other thing too, is, you know, you've got what, 11 total tracks i know 12 total tracks with the instrumental like did you even really need this song i don't know exactly all right well let's let's move on let's not bash the toxic twins on their only lone co right here because next is the big one and that's Mm -hmm. angel right Mm -hmm. which of course was co-written between steven tyler and desmond child no help from joe on this one although he, he does have a a very nice solo, which I know nobody wrote for him. But look, this was part of the formula of the 80s, right? You're a hard rock band. You're going to have some hard rocking songs out there, but you're going to get up the charts with the ballad, right? It's like Motley Crue got up there with Home Sweet Home. Mm-hmm. L.A. Guns got, gets up there with the ballad of James, of Jane. 
Guns N' Roses gets up there with Patience. You can kind of go on and on. You know, it's like every hard rock, you know, eventually Queens ranked in Silent Lucidity. Every hard rock band had one of these on their albums. That's just part of the formula. And this one was huge. Number two mainstream rock, number three on the billboard chart, the main billboard chart. This is when you're competing against Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston, man. Mm-hmm. That's that's not easy to do, you know. So well, the other but, nice thing about this one is this is something to bring the ladies to the shows too. Or you, you go, oh, you know, Aerosmith. I don't like Aerosmith. Oh, here I'll put this one on. Oh, I love this. Of course you do. Of course you do. Right. Yeah, we went to see White Snake for Snow and Night, but the ladies came for is this love correct that I'm feeling, you know, <laughs> and and that's why they're there, you know. But uh, look, this song could have been a hit for a lot of different people, you know, especially with Desmond writing it. You know, Steven's in the video. Mm-hmm. You can tell they put a little money into this because they were on, like, sets for this. Joe yeah. Perry's maybe out on a desert road, but the rest of the guys like her at sets and stuff like that. Plus, they've got them on stage, and Steven's got his white kind of angelic outfit. I don't even know what jump you call suit. this. Is it jumpsuit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. With, you know, some stuff on it, you know. And he's singing his heart out, you know. Plus, he's in the room with this angel like ghost angel girl who might be taking off his pants i I don't know (laughs) if you had to guess you know but you know they got big chords he's singing with the chords here it's like without your love without your love Mm -mm -mm." i mean he's Mm -mm. just exactly with the big riffs right 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 so again it's not an amazing song it's there's not a whole lot to it other than i think joe's solo is really cool Mm. um but interesting huge hit I was going to say, this song is awful. This is an awful <laughs> song. It's, you hate it, if, huh? Oh, if it wasn't for if it wasn't for the the intro, which I always was upset with, because if it was the if it was the radio edit, they cut that down in about half. Oh, really? And the solo too. If you listen to the single version, this oh, song geez. is terrible. This <laughs> is like this is like you. We've got to write a. We got. We have to have a power ballad. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Bring Desmond Child in. Let's right, go. Let's it, get right? out the chart. Let's fill in the blanks and we're good or fill in the model. And this is what we do. The lyrics are terrible. Loneliness took me for a ride. Shut up. <laughs> Come and save me tonight. Come and make it all right. Anybody could have done this song. The, yeah. the thing that the thing that I like about this is the Joe Perry work on this. Mm-hmm. I really have a hard time that he didn't have a writing credit on this. Like real, this giant number three hit. And I don't get credit for this. And you can't tell me somebody else wrote those parts for him. I know, but, but yeah, but you're right. I mean, it could have been a it could have been a, a hit for so many people. Correct. It's, it's not yes. necessarily an Aerosmith. I think what makes it Aerosmith is Stevens' voice and Joe's guitar. Right. O- otherwise, it could have been anybody. You know, Bonnie Tyler could have had it. Correct. Yeah. It, yeah. It's just it's not an Aerosmith song. It's one that they plugged in. They had a huge hit. Good for them. This is the one that propelled the whole record forward. But yeah, it's it's just it's just cheesy. It 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 was 
If you listen to any other record from this time, there was all there was a song like this on every single one of them. That's right. Yeah, yeah absolutely true. It was back with Girl Keeps Coming Apart. It comes out January of 1988, which was our freshman year of high school. And it was all over the radio too, you know, and then, and, and MTV, you know, and it was, it was out before Ragdoll was. And I remember Ragdoll being big because I like rock tunes. And I remember this would be like, yeah, okay, this is one for the ladies. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is where the lighters come out. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, but I'm, I think we're pretty well in alignment there. I mean, if you know, work for Joe Perry, this is barely an Aerosmith song. Correct. And he didn't write it. It's very Desmond Child. I'm glad they had a hit. I'm glad it helped them sell a ton of records. I'm glad it got more females to the to the shows. But I don't listen to this one. <laughs> yes, I will skip this one. And speaking of not listening to this one much, this is a turning point in the record as far as I'm concerned. Uh-oh. Because Permanent Vacation is a very odd song. I mean, honest to God, this is a very strange song within the Aerosmith catalog written by Stephen and Brad Whitford. Uh, so Brad is playing, you know, lead on this, which is kind of cool. But, you know, it starts off with some jungle noises and then mm. there's steel drums throughout it, you mm-hmm. know. And, it's, and, and I love the idea of permanent vacation. It's it's why they, part of why they named the record that, because it's not only, oh, it'd be great to go on vacation, go down to San Tropez and retire, but it's also a vacation from all those nasty things we used to do to ourselves, you know, getting off the drugs was very, very important. I don't know. It's just, it's gimmicky. Again, the chorus to me is gimmicky. Is it fun? Yeah, sure. It's fun, but I take my rock and roll seriously and I don't, I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I it, it, And it's strange too, that this is the title track to the record. Um, I, I, I wrote down, I like the sentiment of being on the permanent vacation. You know, I like the, you know, what, what is it? The, uh, I wrote down steel drums. I get it. We're on vacation. Thank right. you for ramming that into my face. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The main, it's kind of a simple deal. They throw a lot of stuff in there. It's, it's kind of a fun, like throwaway tune. Like they're, are you fun. trying to be Jimmy Buffett? You know, we get it. I, there is one line in there. Uh, my nose is clean, uh, but I don't need no sedation. Okay. You know, again, we're talking about how back in the day, drugs it was again, yeah. mostly so, it's yeah. not drugs. <laughs> yeah. This is one of those ones where it's like, yeah, this, we're definitely on the back. We're on the back side of the mountain here because this this is kind of a throwaway track. I am I'm glad to see Brad Whitford get a writing credit. No doubt. Yeah. And he plays well on it, you know, and uh, and that's all good. But I mean, yeah, it's just it's not what I'm going to want to listen to, right? No, no, and you can't then, say, "Oh, I can't, I can't wait for this one to come up next." No, I know, you know. Again, you're right. The sentiment, the idea of permanent vacation is great. You know, it's, it's a great rock and roll album, right? We're on permanent vacation. We just tour and do our thing. Well, that's great and all, but the song doesn't live up to its title. And then they go the fifth song on the second side or eleventh. They do the Beatles. I'm down. Mm-hmm. Now they okay. did really well with Helter Skelter. Their version of Helter mm-hmm. Skelter is killer, and I I think maybe they were in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Band movie, maybe the soundtrack with Helter Skelter. So I don't know if it was the record company saying, "Hey, you know, you've you've had success with the Beatles track before. Why don't we do that?" Or uh, I don't know why they decided to do this. 
I really don't. And I didn't have the Beatles version of it at the time. So I wasn't super familiar with it. I look at it, oh, this is a Beatles song. I don't I didn't even really know it as a Beatles song, to be honest with you. Well, it wasn't even because I I was thinking the same thing. I was looking at I was looking at the, the dynamics of this thing. It wasn't even on an album. It was the B side of help in 1965 oh okay so i mean that's why i mean i'd heard it before like, like it was kind of rolling around in my brain somewhere but i couldn't you know i couldn't pick it out right off the bat the kind of the interesting thing about this was it, it was lennon and mccartney's try at being a uh, little richard so it's kind of like you know it's you're paying tribute to the beatles and little richard at the same time yeah i'd love to know why they picked this was this a favorite of theirs or was this, like you said, somebody saying, hey, you hit it big with Helter Skelter. Let's try again. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. You know. And then there's some real, there's a lot of piano work at the end. So you mentioned the whole Little Richard thing. Like there's a ton of piano. Is that Steven? I, I mean, yeah. he's the only one who ever plays piano with Smith. So I assume that that's him kind of really jamming on there. So I don't know. Maybe he was jamming on it. And people are like, oh, you should cut that. You know, you should yeah. lay that down. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. Maybe- yeah, maybe it's, you know, this This is the, my favorite Beatles song they ever did. Who knows? There's definitely a story there somewhere. But, you know, it's it's a 52-minute record, and that's yeah. a two-minute song. So <laughs> maybe it should be a 50 or a 49-minute <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, most people forget, oh, you did a Beatles song. Oh, well, I got to hear that. You know, it's it's not that. I'm not saying they don't do it well. It's just it's not my favorite Beatles song. Right, uh, right. And it's already, <laughs> yeah, and you're already in it. You're already in the long. I mean, because what are most records? It's got to be at least you know 35, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, once and you most are in that forty to forty four yeah. range. You know? Once you get into the over fifty, it's like, oh, okay. Oh, there's more on here. Okay, well, let's keep going. Especially at that time. Mm-hmm. And then there's the movie, Ooh. which is an instrumental written by the five of them. It starts with the bass. You know, again, Tom's mm-hmm. right there. It's very ominous. There's some odd speaking in it by some woman that is speaking in some kind of different language. I couldn't I couldn't pick it up. I mean, I could hear her speaking, but I couldn't tell you what language that was in. Yeah. And then other than that, it's an instrumental. It's an odd one. It, it's kind of like we thought we had something here, but we just couldn't get it finished. We couldn't get it with any of Stephen's lyrics. We couldn't get it with any of the other writers we had. So we kind of put it out as is. Yeah. And, and then again, back to your comments before on i'm down why did you do that i mean you already had enough material to release a full-length record i mean maybe it's because everybody has a writing credit i don't know and that maybe has something to do with sales but yeah i i don't know why you put this in there it wasn't it wasn't like it was part of anything or yeah it was in a movie it was in a movie or anything like that i don't know Yeah, I think you may be onto something there with like everybody gets writing credit. Like we got to have one song where everybody gets, you know, something on there. But honestly, I mean, most records of the time were about 10 songs and 42 to 45 minutes. And if you take off the last two, you've got 10 songs and 45 minutes, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I mean, look, overall, I really like the album. It has some huge hits on it. It's got some great Joe Perry work. The band sound very together when they're not trying to get too cute about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just, I think that they 
They wanted to be back on top. Geffen wanted a big hit. They wanted to revive Aerosmith because they knew if they could get them new hits, then that was going to spur old catalog sales. It was going to spur merch and concert sales. It was going to, you know, get them to the next level, which it absolutely did. Uh, it's just some of these songs that just, <laughs> there's a little too much to them and it's just not necessarily Aerosmith. You know yeah, I mean? it, it's almost like there's a little bit too much polish on this. Like you wanted, like you said, you wanted big hits. You wanted to be on the radio. These guys were ready to go ba- again. They, not just, you know, oh, well, well, we'll keep limping along. I mean, they were, they were refreshed, revitalized, re- ready to go. Yeah, a little bit too much polish on a couple of these things. It's, it, it gets off the Aerosmith track. I agree with you. Yeah, I know. I, I was reading reviews on this and they were, you know, like they got C's for this, you know, because there isn't a whole lot there. Right. Content wise. But that's a lot of this. It's not really. I mean, it, it, you knew this wasn't going to be the White Album. OK, this this is a straight ahead rock and roll record. Take it for what it is. Put it on in the car and just start driving. Look, I think it's I think all credit to John Kaladner for it, really. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's the one who's like, look, we can help you, but you got to bring in people who know what they're doing, people who mm-hmm. can write a song with anybody about anybody. So and, and you know, look, I, I've seen kind of the sessions, it must have taped some of it when Desmond came in to start writing with Stephen. I think Joe was more apprehensive about it than Stephen. But then, you know, Stephen's like, OK, well, what do you got? And then. Desmond throws out some lines and Steven shares this like, oh, no, let's try this. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, this is fine. Yeah, I can do this. This is not so bad. So Collider really deserves a lot of credit for for putting Aerosmith back on track. And look, I mentioned earlier the kind of uh, what it takes, the the kind of the behind the scenes, the making of pump video Mm -hmm. that you could get on VHS at the time. And they culled some pieces of it to make a couple of videos on it. But there's a point where Collider comes to visit them in Vancouver. Like he, he just, he flies up to kind of check in what's going on. What am I hearing? And mm. they, you know, he plays him some songs and Steven's hopping around. Like, what do you think, John? Are the two singles? What do you think? Three? Maybe four? You think they're four singles? I mean, he's like, you know, that, that little dog who's jumping around Spike. Like, what do you say, Spike? We go to get a cat today, Spike? No, Spike, you don't want to do that to you, Spike. You know, he, he's like, Steven, you're a rock star and a sex symbol. And you're hopping around this little bearded hobbit weirdo like he's god almighty but honest to goodness he kind of was as far as steven tyler was concerned he's, like, he's going to get my stuff on mtv he's going to get it on the radio so if yeah. i can make him happy then i win correct yeah correct you you get what you yeah you get what you want you get to be back on top you get to be a huge rock star uh i mean yeah th- this was only the beginning i mean once you got to once you got to like pump they were just everywhere this, this was kind of like the launching pad for them to for another 10 years worth of really uh 12 years yeah 15 really years i mean big hits big you know in the in the social conscience everybody knew who aerosmith was right. they got there's a ride at one of the disney parks that was they collaborated with or something that i think is still there so i mean they were very much in the even if you didn't know who aerosmith was like even you couldn't name one Aerosmith song like you heard that name before like oh I've, they're a band right yeah everybody knew that absolutely you know and then they get into all these movie soundtracks that they're on mm-hmm. they're on the Beavis and Butthead soundtrack they're on Wayne's World 2 soundtrack hell they're in Wayne's World 2. yeah yeah you know the Armageddon don't want to miss a thing could that have been any bigger for them I mean I no. feel like it was bigger than the movie was the song yeah. Right. And then that, okay, so that's another example of them saying that was Diane Warren, I think, saying, you know right. what, 
we've we've had really good success with stuff that you know other people have either written or collaborated on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, we'll take a Diane Warren song, not an Aerosmith song either, but a huge hit for them, just Giant, massive, enormous for them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just huge, you know. And, and so they do just push play, or they do Nine Lives, or they uh, will put out a live album. Okay, well that's that goes triple platinum. It's a double out, you know. Or it, it's it's crazy that their greatest hits albums come out and go multi-platinum uh, you know they, they do these huge tours um i've seen them a couple of times i guess and, and they really deliver live I, actually i i paid me and my buddy hunt paid way too much money to go backstage to meet steven tyler and do yeah. a tour and everything they actually let you go on stage and grab his microphone and take a picture screaming into it with oh. his scarves on it and everything you know it's, wow. it, was, it was that was it cost way too much for what we got out of it <laughs> But, you know, it was still a, a fun thing to do. Uh, and it was pre, pre-marriage, pre-kids. So it's like, yeah, I can, I can spend some money on myself. You got a couple bucks laying around. Yeah, why not? You know, and I got to meet uh, Rick Nielsen of oh, Cheat cool. Trick, who were opening for them. By the way, that um, Hanging Out Down the Street song, that is the theme song. Oh, the 70s to, show. The 70s yeah. show. Mm-hmm. That's Draw the Line. It's, it's Draw the Line. And, and what shocked me was, yeah, and that's that, that's cheap trick, wasn't it? That's cheap trick, yeah, yeah. They, and they played it live while they're opening for Aerosmith. I'm like, are you? First of all, you're playing a song that's the theme song of a TV show. Secondly, <laughs> you're playing it front and for the band that you blatantly ripped the rip off of. You know, you guys <laughs> are something else. You know, <laughs> oh, but he was hey, funny. All friendly. He, he he was a good guy. Like we were all walking by in a line, and all of a sudden he popped out of his trailer. Because he's kind of a character. Yeah. Right? And even though there were probably 30 or 40 of us, he popped out right when I was walking by his door. So I just kind of stuck out my hand and said, hey, how you doing? And he shook my hand. I was like, ah, that was that was fun. You know, that was cool. You know, uh, funny guy, you know. A little extra thrown in there for you. Yeah. I also won some Aerosmith refrigerator magnets. I don't know. They had some kind of a drawing or something. And like the big gift was like, you get an autograph record or something like that. But one of the smaller gifts was you get these, and it was like leftover from the, like the last tour. Like, you know, they were just kind of like laying around like, okay, we still got these. You guys want them? Like, yeah, hey, great. And then my, I had my aunt who's a master scrapbooker, but she doesn't know anything about rock and roll. Uh-huh. Put, put together like a scrapbook for me while I was out in the country. Yeah. She, she put the Aerosmith, that, those, those magnets. She took them out and put them all over the Rolling Stones page because <laughs> she didn't know the difference. Okay. (laughs) Well, you tried. Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. Now I keep everything in a box Uh, (laughs) instead of in a a nice, in a nice book. But uh, anyway, (laughs) now I, I consciously quit seeing Aerosmith after a while because like I've seen them, I've seen them at their best. I don't want to see them in their seventies. I don't want to see them in their late sixties. You know, I Mm -hmm. saw them in their fifties when they were still pretty badass. You know, I hear they're still awesome live. I don't know personally. The last time I saw them live was not quite 20 years ago. I, I saw okay. that I saw that one tour. It's like the Honkin' on Bobo tour. And that's 2004-ish, I feel like. Um, and then they did a co-headline tour with Kiss, where I think they would kind of switch off right, headlining. Okay. And then they kind of had a little bit of an abbreviated set. So I saw that, and then that was the last time I saw them. But they're still going. They have not quit. And, and Stephen, he had to have like foot surgery or something like that. They gave him some narcotics to, to help mm-hmm. him. He's like, oh, this is going to be bad for me. He immediately checked himself into rehab mm-hmm. so he could go. And he's like 75. And he's like, he could just kind of go back out and do his thing to do what he does at his age. 
is unbelievable. Again, Mick Jagger is the only one who comes close. And it's crazy to think that after you've done all that time and effort, put all that time and effort into being sober, it literally is one, you're one step away from just being right back there again. I know it's sad, but it's it's just part of the work that you have to continue to put in no matter what, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and so that's a testament to him. You know, I'm sure, especially, you know, being on these giant tours, mm-hmm. there's got, even if you tell hey, everybody's sober on this tour, you know, get that stuff away. You know, if you really wanted it, it would be very easy to get anything and minutes. everything. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, but this is the one, you know, five times platinum in the U.S., maybe six to eight million sales around the world. Pump was even bigger mm-hmm. than that. Get a Grip was even bigger. Get a grip was as big as permanent vacation and pump put together sales wise. Yeah. Are you kidding me? That's unbelievable. I mean, it's like Hotel California level sales. It's crazy. And it's also coming to the end of that era. You know, mid 90s, you could still do that. Late 90s, okay, starting in trouble. Early 2000s, it is over. You talk about like record sales? Yeah. 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 That that dried up once uh once Napster and Limewire hit the uh, universe. Yeah, that was it. Well, that wraps up episode number 106 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock podcast on Aerosmith's permanent vacation. Got to take a second to correct myself there. I mentioned that Helter Skelter uh, was a hit for them uh, in the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club movie. It was actually come together that Aerosmith did uh, for that movie. They did get on the charts and it's on some Aerosmith Greatest Hits records. Helter Skelter, I believe, was only, or at least at first, only on Pandora's box, the box set that we actually mentioned during the show, which we got. It came out in 91, and I got that for Christmas, and we listened to the heck out of it. So Aerosmith was huge for us in college, not only because Get a Grip came out, and we were still all psyched about Pump, which had come out a couple of years before we went to college, but it was that box set, Pandora's Box, that really got us familiar with the old stuff. So we're listening to the new stuff, we're listening to all the old classic stuff, then Get a Grip comes out. They've got a ton of videos out with Alicia Silverstone, and they sell over 20 million copies in the United States. Really pretty amazing. And I got to tell you, though, Tom Hamilton, Joey Kramer, Brad Whitford, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry all do an amazing job on the Permanent Vacation album. You've got to give all due credit to John Kalodner, A&R man extraordinaire, who not only helped revive them and get them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but got himself into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a contributor. So we may not have loved every song off Permanent Vacation, but it had big hits. It had some great album tracks. It had them working with a lot of outside writers, which had good and mixed results. You can't argue that long-term, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Look at the sales of Rock in a Hard Place and Done With Mirrors, and look at the sales of Permanent Vacation, Bump, and Get a Grip. You're talking maybe 3 million versus maybe 40 million, okay? It's night and day. And Aerosmith are still going to this day. Thank goodness the bad boys from Boston are still doing their thing. So, as usual, we want to know, folks, other than the come-together helter-skelter thing, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? You have got to let us know. You have got to email us at UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can also tweet us or DM us at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. You can check us out on Instagram. You can check us out on YouTube. We thank uh, our family from Pantheon Podcasts. We thank the good folks at RareVinyl.com or EIL.com. It's the holidays, guys. If you need something for yourself or for that special someone in your life, 
go to rarevinyl.com, use code podcast, save 10% off all of your purchases and get them in for the holidays. Next week, well, I don't know what's going to come out next week because we got a couple things going and I honestly don't know which one we're going to put out first. So you're going to have to tune in to know. But as usual, folks, we want to tell all of you, all of you all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.